Welcome to Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve our nation's cultural divisions by talking about Jean-Jacques Rousseau. This is episode three, and I'm your host, Charles Bobinger, coming from actually not that bad right now, Washington, D.C. With me on the line, as always, my co-host David Wheel from gorgeous Istanbul. David, how's it going? Doing well, Charles. I hope uh, the call to prayer going on doesn't... uh disrupt the beginning of the podcast too much it compared to our first recording i can barely hear it i heard just a little bit in the background not very much this time good um all right well in in that case uh let's get right to it um do you have anything to share about the march on istanbul that occurred last week because i want to give our listener um (laughs) a little bit of uh that of, of uh, that extra special perspective that we can provide by having one of our co-hosts not just sitting in a room in Washington, D.C.? Well, you know, it does – I was thinking about this, um, in the, again, in the context of uh, comparing to current events in America. But I think it, it, it is always useful to have a uh, nuanced sense of how lucky we still are to live in a troubled but not – failing, not yet actually failing democratic system uh, and a system where we have not the rule of a dictator by law, but actual rule of law, as frustrating as um, that can be in particular instances. Because you ask about the march, uh, this is you know, very impressive uh, civil society demonstration where the main opposition party leader declared his intention to walk uh, the 280 um, miles, I believe, or kilometers, I think miles, from Ankara to Istanbul. And to do so, most importantly, not under his own party uh, auspices, but um, as a march for justice. And uh, that allowed other uh, political groups and civil society groups to to join in because who can say no to more justice and more to the point uh, who with a straight face could say oh we have plenty of justice in this country um, and so they got to uh, you know, they got to the outskirts of Istanbul and had a big rally in uh, on the Anatolian side you know Istanbul straddles the uh, European and Asian continents and they had a big rally on the Asian side. Um, but, you know, we live in the era of fake news in America. And, of course, we do here in Turkey as well, because the government actually, you know, government ally, government aligned Twitter trolls, for example, took f- images of the rally that had probably about a million people uh, in this big uh, square and doctored the images so that they showed images of the setup of the rally for the justice march and said, this is what the rally looked like. Look, there are only a couple hundred people. And then they showed the images of, from a different angle, of the full uh, justice rally, but edited the images to make it appear to come from a rally that Erdogan had held a year prior. So it's this wheels within wheels where they're saying, you know, look at these opposition figures, such terrible liars that they they steal an image from Erdogan's march and they pretend that that, you know, not, not Erdogan's march, one of Erdogan's rallies, and they pretend that that's their justice march, you know, whereas their justice march is actually, 
such a paltry gathering of a couple hundred people. You know, that has no really... parallel in recent U.S. experience at all. <laughs> exactly. I can't imagine exactly. what you're referencing there. <laughs> exactly. Um, wow. But I, but course, it was relatively peaceful in the end. Is this this is what I peaceful? Heard? Yes. Yeah. And and what's interesting about that is so that was a week ago. Um, last night was the one year anniversary of the failed coup attempt, um, where uh, uh, elements from the Turkish military attempted to overthrow the government and were repelled by a combination of um, Turkish civilians uh, flooding into the streets to oppose the coup and um, schism within the Turkish military itself, aided with uh, aided by the, the very relatively solid support of the uh, police forces for the civilian government. So uh, this was the one-year anniversary of that, and I think to some extent um, the reason that the justice march was not um, really hampered in any in any significant way was that they had this trump card, as it were, um, where they they knew that they were going to have a, a very large rally of their own just a week later, and um, so letting that be marred in any way by um, any kind of violence in the lead up uh, was just not something that they wanted to do on the one hand or um, really needed to do on the other because they had plenty of images from this huge rally of their own showing their own level of popular support. All right. Yeah. Well, it's always good when those things can be reasonably peaceful. I mean, part of the problem is whenever you have a large number of people in a public space, there are going to be problems. You know, it's no matter how peaceful demonstrators want to be, just having, you know, I mean, even if it were just a few thousand people, let alone a million, in a single large public space, there's all kinds of stuff that's just going to happen. You, just by accident, by miscommunication, it's very difficult to hold off something to hold something like that and have it go fairly peacefully, which is impressive. Yeah, and I mean the history. Um, I mean, all over the world, the history of um, you know provocateurs who go into the outskirts of these events and start um, you know property damage, physical assault, that sort of thing. It's so it's seemingly so difficult to prevent that, um, you know, the fact that it didn't happen uh, here last week was um, really something quite, I mean, as you say, yeah, sort of uh, a cause for optimism in a way. Yeah. But, but of course, part of the issue is that um, the degree of state repression here is so advanced mm-hmm. that the, um, you know, let them march, let them play in the street. There's, where is it going to go? The the government has a certain amount of uh, confidence that there's not much, um, not much runway in front of the opposition as it were. And that's where, again, you know, going back to the comparative perspective and thinking about America, um, that as bad as things are um, in certain respects and, despite the way that we can see almost see in real time, practically the erosion of the rule of law um, in our own country in terms of, you know, I mean, we were, uh, we were talking about this a little bit when we were warming up, but the way that um, in no previous version of 
what any um, security official or American politician could imagine as being even remotely possible would a senior aide in the White House who had made the kinds of error, you know, let's be charitable and call them errors um, of a mission that, you know, Kushner has, you know, in no conceivable version of reality at any time in the past, would he still have a job, much less, you know, not be currently facing um, serious investigation. Uh, it's just, it's just shocking to see. Um, but as bad as it is, you know, we still have a long way to go and, and a lot to protect. Um, you know, the, the game is not run. Absolutely. And, yeah. um, for, for those of you, uh, not quite up on what we're discussing here, uh, Jared Kushner on his SF-86 form for getting a security clearance, um, made a number of relevant omissions um, and had to put in an amended form where he added 100 foreign contacts that he had had. And uh, in that, he still didn't include his meeting with Natalia Veselnitskaya, the Russian uh, lawyer lobbyist that uh, he met with that has been the center of controversy for this week. So he has managed to, on multiple occasions, keep updating his form and still not include some very critical, incriminating contacts that he has had. This is the sort of thing that would cause you to lose your clearance immediately if you weren't the son-in-law of the president. And this is why, in general, America tries to avoid letting the president's family be involved in things because you end up with situations like this. Um, one of the great amusing uh, shares of this week is people showing how hard it is to submit the SF-86 form. Uh, the, the number that I heard was that it takes approximately 28 clicks to submit. So Kushner's initial excuse that a staffer accidentally hit send is just not even remotely plausible. <laughs> that just did not happen. Um, but uh, to talk about, uh, to, to, to shift to the brighter side, uh, this week's topic is going to be about the conservatives and Republicans who have not been able to jump on the Trump train and who have uh, not been making excuses for him when he and his family get up to activity like this. Uh, last week, I thought we had a wonderful discussion in terms of the discussion that we actually had about uh, the GOP. Uh, unfortunately, we had, we had chosen a topic that turned out to be so broad, we could talk for half the length of the show purely about gay marriage and um, still have a, a very wonderful discussion, but not get anywhere near our overly broad topic. So today we're going to try to be a little bit narrower. Um, we'll find out as this show progresses whether we ever really get our ha get a handle on what the appropriate length of a topic is. Um, but today we're going to talk about never Trump people, to give them a shorthand. Not everybody involved might necessarily have used that hashtag, but um, it's important to bear in mind that you don't want to get confirmation bias to say, oh, clearly Trump is the worst president we've ever had. Oh, he's terrible. Uh, when, you know, a lot of people said that about George W. Bush, who did a lot of things bad. But when you compare him to Trump, it, it's not really much of a comparison. So the question that we um, have to ask ourselves is, how do we know Trump is actually as bad as he seems? And how do we prevent just thinking that we're getting confirmation bias? And the way that we're going to talk about today is to... Uh, discuss people who would not be approaching this from a perspective of confirmation bias, uh, people who have a, 
a legitimate vested interest in uh, the Republican Party doing well who have looked at Trump and said, this is this is crazy. This is madness. This is terrible. I cannot get along with this, because if people like this are um, turning on have, have turned on Trump who cannot support Trump, then it's probably not just us being partisan. So uh, to start with, I was compiling um, just a little bit from memory a partial list of conservative writers or television hosts that uh, are reasonably mainstream who took the never-Trump attitude. And it's a fairly impressive list. Just, you know, as I said, an incomplete one. You have Bill Kristol, Charles Krauthammer, George Will, Max Boot, Joe Scarborough, Jennifer Rubin, Brett Stevens, Ross Douthat, David Brooks, David Frum. And that, and, and that is, you know, I haven't looked for a comprehensive total list of conservative writers and thinkers who could not get on the Trump train. Um, but that is very impressive on its own. Now, all of them were never Trump to varying degrees. For example, Bill Kristol, Charles Krauthammer, and George Will were more on the side of, I can't bring myself to vote for Trump, and I will write stuff that is opposed to him, but I can't bring myself to vote for Hillary Clinton. Some of the other ones were able to openly root for Hillary Clinton because they knew that she was the alternative. And that does get that does raise some interesting questions about um, what your responsibility is when you understand that one side poses a horrible challenge, but voting for the other side feels like a betrayal of everything you believe in. Uh, nevertheless, when looking at this, I was trying to find who are the conservative intellectuals who backed Trump. And it's difficult to define intellectual because obviously there are plenty of thinkers in think tanks in elected office, uh, possibly even some on television, although evidence is spotty on that. Um, but uh, so I would I would discount uh, elected officials because they their interest is such that well we've seen how spineless a lot of the Republicans in the House have been. You've had people like Rob Portman and John Kasich who could not um, endorse Trump, but they really haven't taken um, quite the never Trump line um, of telling other people not to vote for them. And uh, you you then have people who are just hacks for one party or the other. That's your, your Sean Hannity, your Rush Limbaugh. They're not thinkers in any normal sense of the term. They're showmen who are doing something prop that is propaganda. Um, and so you don't get that many defections from people on, on that side. So I was trying to think of who are the conservative thinkers who are not absolutely forced to back Trump, who ended up backing Trump. And I could really only come up with Victor Davis Hanson, who <laughs> many of our listeners may not be familiar with, but he's primarily known as an historian who um, covers a lot of ancient Greek history. Um, he's always had very conservative views. And I mean, I, his endorsement of Donald Trump is the only one that I can recall seeing from somebody who wasn't a showman or an elected official for Donald Trump on the conservative side. David, do you have any awareness of any um, other thinkers who were able to back Trump? Um, no, I mean, it's, and this is part of the, how do you define thinker? The, that is part how of do you the find thinkers, too, yeah. And to some extent, we're um, sort of having a selection effect by this, but again, that yeah. list of names, I mean, Bill Crystal, Charles Krauthammer, George Will, Max Boot, we're not talking about like leftist, uh, you know, squishy moderates. Right. And, you know, I actually remember, um, months and months ago, uh, 
going back and forth on um, how to evaluate this fantastic uh, interview that the um, uh, I forget the name of the host, but there's a institute out of the Hoover Institution in uh, Stanford that uh, you know very conservative organization there. And um, there's a uh, an interview program that they run out of the um, out of there called uh, the American Mind. And a year or two ago, they interviewed Krauthammer, and he gave his intellectual his story of intellectual development. And it was just a beautiful thing to see because this is someone who is an arch conservative in a lot of ways, but was able to beautifully describe his intellectual uh, path through um, the liberalism that he inherited basically with mother's milk, you know, at the time uh, that he was a young person where when kind of everyone was um, to some extent on the left, at least that that was the, that was the sort of the fashion, um, you know, but then very clearly articulated his path to the right. And so, no, this is, you know, these are not people and Krauthammer in particular, definitely not, not people who, um, have any kind of loose attachment to conservative ideas. You know, they, they think very hard about what it means to be a conservative and um, they are by no means anything but conservatives. Um, but the simple fact that they have, you know, intellectual coherence, um, I mean, that's basically what make it, made it impossible for them, I think, to, um, to support Trump and then what pushed them to actually stick their heads up out of the foxhole Fox hole, as it were, um, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, and brave the, uh, the retribution of other, you know, other people who call themselves conservatives, who, uh, rely on and support conservative politicians, um, you know, and who were rolling over because the electoral process and political and the path to political power uh, lay through falling in line behind Trump, you know, those people and their uh, threat of retribution being present, you know, people like Krauthammer and other, these other intellectuals, uh, you know, were forced by the integrity of their minds you know, to, to stand up and, and, um, deliver their criticism of Trump. And yeah, I, I just, I, I can't find anyone who, um, is seriously and really articulately capable of explaining their, their conservative principles who didn't, you know, who did anything other than kind of meekly shut their mouths and move on with Trump. Yeah. I read Victor Davis Hanson's, um, sort of endorsement that he had written last year and it wasn't super intellectual uh it with a lot of part of what i feel is the problem is we talk about you know charles krauthammer having this rich intellectual tradition that he has embraced that he likes to think about but a lot of the time when we read his columns or listen to him in interviews are we getting that intellectual condition or our tradition, or are we getting vitriol about how much he hates liberals, which, you know, you're, right. you, it, obviously he, he's not, 
a pure vitriol spewer. That's the Sean Hannity, Rush Limbaugh line. But I was I went back in preparing for this discussion. I went back and read some of what he'd written right before the election last year, and he had he'd said a lot over the year, going back to May of last year, that he and possibly even earlier. The first one that I saw was from May of last year that he could never vote for Trump. He just couldn't. But before the election, he said he also could not vote for Hillary Clinton. Right. And I find this problematic because I understand that Hillary Clinton represents a lot of things he does not believe in and represents um, a push in the direction of policies he thinks would be bad for the country. But at the same time, if you are a conservative and you find Donald Trump this repellent, this awful, this much of a once or twice in a generation threat to our democracy. Hillary Clinton was a normal politician. She had flaws. You could argue she's on the shadier side of a normal politician because by having been involved in Washington so long, there's a long history you could look at and poke at this deal or that deal and say she made a mistake here or there. Um, But she was fundamentally a normal politician. And Donald Trump was not. He was a much bigger threat to our system of government through his authoritarian tendencies, through his riling up of crowds, all of those things. So I'm a little concerned that in that case, Krauthammer seemed to be applying much less in the piece that I read on why he couldn't vote for Hillary Clinton. He seemed to be applying very little intellectual strength to bear on that argument and more, here are a bunch of things I just don't like about Hillary Clinton. Here are some deals yeah. I think she did that well, I thought is, were shady. This is a different topic, um, but you know I strongly believe that the and I'll keep repeating this. You know that the theme of the 2016 election is just wishful thinking and irresponsibility on the part of basically everyone involved, um, because the threat that Donald Trump posed should have resulted in a landslide against him everywhere as people turned out and, and, you know, thought seriously, okay, here's a guy who is appealing to the worst in us constantly. And here is a, at, you know, even if you're coming at Hillary Clinton, you know, as a Republican, um, as you said, a normal politician, someone within the bounds of, uh, you know, of, of just the reality that we've all come to accept. Um, and that the obvious choice was to, uh, by no means, you know, under absolutely no circumstances, vote for Trump and ideally um, just swallow your pride and vote for the, you know, the least bad. Of course, that's the narrative that people uh, thought about and resented and ended up rebelling against where they either didn't turn out or they said, you know, um, what have I got to lose? (laughs) How could it, you know, like things are so bad, how could it get any worse? I'll I'll go for Trump because he's offering to shake things up. Um, It's just magical thinking and and irresponsibility where uh, I saw a great line that um, you know, people who weren't inspired by Hillary, uh, who were so naive that they thought of their vote as a love letter, mm. you know, that they, that they could only 
vote for someone they were passionate about and you know who moved them. It's like no, it's it's not. You know, love letters are love letters. A vote is your civic responsibility. Um, but again, that's that's a different topic. Um, and this you know matter of um, you know what motivated conservative Republicans, conservative Republican public figures, intellectuals, media personalities. Um, to approach Trump with integrity, knowing that he represented a series of forces that are pretty new in America. I mean, at least there, I mean, there are precedents for them, but they are unfamiliar given our recent history in American politics, you know, to approach him knowing that that is what he represented and to guard against it and to say, you know, I, I don't accept this. And then there are all the others who um, sidled up to him thinking, you know, we can manage him. We can handle this. This isn't so bad. You know, maybe it's a good thing. He has a different perspective. He's got a, you know, he's an executive. Like all those people who were not, you know, who are not wary are being warped and twisted and pulled under by these strange, uh, these, you know, these new forces coming in from different angles than we're used to in Washington, <clears throat> you know, but what is, so what is it that identifies the conservatives who were wary? And, um, yeah, I think it's, it's this in, intellectual integrity, um, that comes from, uh, a solid understanding of history. It is to some extent, almost like, uh, some of these emotions that run under that emerge every now and then they're kind of like, I was just thinking of this because it's been in the news lately, cicadas. There are certain, <laughs> I mean, this could, this could be, you know, a useful way to think about some things because it's, you know, cicadas are nowhere for 13 to 17 years and then suddenly they're everywhere. And there are certain, uh, emotional parts of politics that are like that. You think this is something new. This is something that we haven't been seeing because we managed to go for a very long period without having to deal with it, without having this problem. And then suddenly it just emerges and it's everywhere. Um, and uh, yeah, that's uh, that, uh, that can be especially disorienting to people who thought that the intellectual tradition they were coming from was shared by the other conservatives. That was something that I noticed um, in the writings of um, a lot of the conservatives that I've named. And the ones that I named are ones that I, that I tend to read. Um, and part of what I saw from them was this shock that they suddenly discover that all these other people that they thought agreed with them were so willing to throw away everything that they thought was important. And right. a key part of that, when you're talking about somebody like Crystal, Krauthammer, or Boot, is that uh, is NATO. I mean, during the campaign, yeah. Trump said NATO was obsolete. And Trump has already done more in just a few months to fracture our alliances not just with nato but elsewhere than a lot of our enemies have managed to do in decades of trying um it was it was so easy for one bad american president to come in and make it clear to all of our allies that america's assistance can sometimes america can just have an election that tilts badly for a, a silly reason like um, you know, the electoral college, the popular vote by a considerable margin, three million votes, still went for the same normal candidate. But sometimes you'll get an electoral college quirk that wasn't anticipated in the polls. And suddenly that means for four years, 
your most important ally is just not there for you. And that's kind of a horrible realization for the rest of the world to have had to deal with. Well, it's been a good realization for our enemies, but a terrible one for our allies. Um, and, you know, that's something that your, your crystals and crowd hammers find completely unacceptable. And I almost wonder when they refused to vote for Hillary Clinton if that was because they didn't – either because they thought Hillary was going to win anyway or because they thought they were in states where their vote wouldn't matter or that they didn't realize Trump was really going to destroy our alliances. You know, you, you can't come from the party that spent eight years saying that uh, Obama was um, was fraying our key alliances. For example, they talked about Britain a lot. Um, and they said that Obama was never, you know, nice enough to – that Obama was never, you know, beloved enough by NATO that he was always sort of disrespecting them with his pivot to Asia and all of that. Right. Yeah. You can't criticize that for eight years and then be on the side of the candidate who – does so much to deliberately destroy the nature of those alliances. It's it's uh, it's, yeah. it's it's very unpleasant. It, yeah, no, I agree with that. I think um, you know a little. I'm guilty of uh, exaggeration myself at times. So I think you know this is one of these moments where um, you know to destroy the nature of the alliance. I think is at this point. Uh, I mean, it's an interpretation that could be argued. I mean, yes. there's, there's definitely evidence for that. Um, but I think as a um, starting position of how <laughs> to approach the issue, you know, I, I suppose I could be more say, moderate in that statement. Yeah. To, but to, to, be, disrupt. to be fair, that's the position taken by a lot of these conservative writers. They're really panicked about it. Right. Right. Not that necessarily um, it's immediately necessarily destroyed, but for the future, even if we patch the, if Trump gets knocked out in four years, they know that they're only ever one crazy U.S. election that hinges yeah. on things unrelated to NATO away from the U.S. not fulfilling its role in the world. Right, right. You know, and actually, this is interesting because you know, so like I said before, I think that um, the 2016 election was a matter of irresponsibility, and part of that irresponsibility was a failure of people who were equipped to think through the outcome of a Trump victory, you know, to under, you know, they should have understood that it was, as we discussed before, you know, an average polling error away from happening, which meant that the polls did not say no chance. It meant average polling error chance, um, very possible, you know, uh, greater odds than killing yourself playing Russian roulette. And, yeah a sane person would not play Russian roulette. Um, the people who were equipped who, or should have been equipped to make that probabilistic calculation. And as part of that probabilistic calculation should have then been able to game out some of the ramifications of his being elected to see exactly what you just described of, you know, the rhetoric of the campaign being uh, converted into this, bizarre um frat boy like hazing approach of our allies who you know obviously don't expect that kind of behavior and that it doesn't make any real sense um to anticipate any kind of salutary effect coming out of it it's just all it does is show that america is unreliable as you described um you know the people who should have been able to understand this and foresee it and think it through um, 
just didn't. And they just, yeah. they just, uh, you know, as, as sort of doomsaying as some of them might have seemed to be during the campaign, they didn't actually go far enough. And this actually, it, it, it's sort of a tangent, but it, it brings to mind this um, article that came up, um, I think in the New York, New York Magazine, about climate change scenarios. Oh, Did this you, is you the one that this? everybody's been talking about this week. Yeah, that everybody, I mean, again, you know, we're talking about the news and, uh, it struck me as perfect for, um, you know, a follow-up to one of these themes that we discuss of, you know, process and probabilistic thinking, which is that this article basically, uh, you know, uh, the title of it was, um, you know, the world is ending sooner than you think, something something like that. Uh, I wish I could remember the actual article. But then again, it's, it's hard to remember the names when they're, when like the title of the article is like a sentence. Yes. <laughs> It's, it's um, a sentence, and it usually is chosen by an editor, not the author of the piece, which doesn't always fit perfectly. Exactly. But, you know, the article um, comes across as this, doom, you know, total doomsaying uh, climate change will destroy our civilization before the end of the century. Um, but what struck me about the piece is that my read, based on, you know, a few lines scattered here and there throughout the throughout the article is that it was not saying these things that I'm describing will definitely happen before the end of the century. It was saying most climate scientists talk about probabilities and they have been so cowed by the response, both of, reporters and politicians to any discussion of climate change uh, scenarios that they are more or less unwilling to discuss the outer bound negative uh, possibilities, basically what we might call the black tail events. Um, and the article just spent the entire time talking about the black tail. And it struck me that the reaction to it was totally off base because the, the whole point is, you know, you have to be able to imagine this and understand that it actually is possible. I mean, again, based on the models, based on the scenarios, they're giving us the, you know, the moderate outcome that we're more or less planning for. Um, and this article is saying, okay, look at the model, mm. look at the moderate scenario, and now look at the black tail event that the model actually assigns a probability to. And let's try to understand what that scenario looks like. Understanding what the scenario looks like is not the same thing as um, deciding what probability it has. Those are two different steps. But in order to, uh, to assess risk, you have to assess both the damage and the probability. And then you figure out what the, you know, how to combine those two into your calculations. And, you know, so the, the reaction to that article as, you know, this isn't helpful, it's, it's doomsaying, and it's, um, you know, the end is nigh, this sort of stuff, the sky is falling, you know, there's, that's never the right way to approach these issues. Um, you know, it's hyperventilating, blah, blah, blah. That, that response struck me as totally off base because, again, the point is, like, 
serious scientists, no serious scientist would say that that outcome is impossible. The only question is what the probability is. And then the step beyond that is when should we be worried? You know, does the probability have to be 90% before we're worried? I mean, if it's something that is as, uh, you know, as threatening as the outcomes that are described, should we be worried if there's only a 2% chance of what he described uh, coming? Well, that's the Cheney 1% doctrine that got us into the Iraq war. Well, exactly. So, but the, yeah. so I'm not, which, again, is, I'm which not is why I'm, which, which I say not to criticize your argument, but to simply point out to everybody that um, people on the right who've been climate change, either denialists or lukewarmists, um, you know, if you were in favor of the 1% doctrine when it came to an enemy state getting weapons, you should be in favor of at least a 2% doctrine when it comes to the end of humanity. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So, and then again, you know, the reason I brought this up is I think that there's, there was an analogous, I think the response to that article reflects the same mindset uh, that led to an unwillingness to think clearly about the threat that Trump, that the Trump presidency presented. And it's that people were just unwilling to think seriously about one probability and two, um, you know, what the risk of, or, you know, I mean, risk includes probability, but let's say the, um, the costs and the negative outcomes of, the scenario coming to pass regardless of what the probability is. So you know, there are two different things. And I think people um, all across the political spectrum uh, in all sorts of public roles, but, you know, a lot of them in the, you know, in various parts of the media got both just completely wrong and they're getting it wrong again. It's yeah. just that this, this article is a you know, much smaller example. Well, I was very skeptical when you started talking about that, but you actually brought it around pretty well to what we were talking about, which is just <laughs> that concern that when there's a low probability, high impact event, I mean, you you do have to look at, you know, this is something that people have been able to do when it's an issue other than global warming. This is something people were doing a lot after 9-11. They had that immediate jolt of the terrorist attack and they said, you know, we're really going to look at how bad it would be if Iraq got nuclear weapons. And it would have been very bad. Um, although, yeah, it would have been very bad. And so they have this 1% doctrine for that. But now I think you've made a great point that uh, people are arguing over, is this a 50% chance? Is it a 30% chance? Is it a 10% chance? Mentioning the 5% chance is alarmist. But at the same time, you if, if the 5%, 2%, 1% chance is a massive global catastrophe, then you really need to at least look at it. And I have not read this article myself, but I did read a lot of the reaction to the article. And what I saw was that apparently it was written for uh, more of a normal audience, the kind of people who don't follow these scientific things as closely. And so some people on the left who are concerned about climate change criticized it for being alarmist because it wasn't couched in as much of the scientific um, let's be careful about this exact probability stuff that scientists have been um, sort of cautioned into doing because of the fights over climate change. And so um, as a result, uh, that was just an example of where the left gets into arguing about, you know, it's the more you agree, the more you fight over the little things. And, exactly. Yeah. And in this no, case, I, you know, science yeah. scientists, 
feel like they can't say anything that could be questioned on climate change because denialists will go after them for it. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so this is something written for a general audience to get people who don't understand it as well concerned and that that is a big thing, which actually brings us, by the way, I mean, once again, this ended up being a perfect segue um, because something I want to talk about is we get these conservative writers who take the anti-Trump stance. And so they become sort of heralded by the left during the election because, oh, look, you can see that Trump really is that bad because even this staunch conservative can see it. But this is a problem that um, we run into from time to time because we sometimes then forget that these people are still conservatives. And (laughs) so Brett Stevens um, was one of the big – you know, never Trump heroes throughout the early stages of the election. And he used to write for the Wall Street Journal. And um, I mean, whoever knows exactly what's going on behind the scenes, but it it looked like he had some clashes with the editorial board over his never Trump stances because the Wall Street Journal fell in line a bit more than he was willing to. And now he writes for the New York Times, that leftist rag. And so um, his very first column for the New York Times was a very interesting one about climate change because, again, just like this article, people didn't want to debate what it was actually saying. They wanted to debate what they wanted it to be saying so they could criticize it, which right. was, in this case, he wrote a piece about certainty, about, and it was about the election. He was tying in global warming in the election. He was saying, look, you guys were so sure Hillary would win and you were wrong. You should understand that as much as you're sure about this and global warming, you could be wrong. An issue that, as we just discussed, can cut both ways because it can also turn out to be worse than you're thinking it's going to be. Um, The actual piece he wrote was not global warming denialist. He made it very clear that he believes in global warming. He believes that it is man-made. He believes that it will have bad consequences. He was talking more about the level of certainty that is used to describe it and about what exactly the consequences would be. And, of course, everybody jumped on him right at the start of his time at the New York Times, criticizing him very viciously over what they called a global warming denialist column when it really wasn't, because we weren't capable of having that nuanced discussion of saying global warming is real and we need to do something about it. Let's get into discussing exactly what that means. And what you've described in the New York Magazine article here is the same point, um, but taken from the side that says this data makes it look like we need to be prepared for it to be worse, not better. Um, and so uh, what I want to talk about in terms of this this shock that we see when somebody who was with us on the election, I mean, um, a few days before the election, I was sort of lamenting on Facebook that I really had gotten emotionally attached to a lot of these conservative writers, your Max Boots and Brett Stevens. And I was kind of sad that when the election was over and, you know, I, I knew that the odds of Hillary winning weren't as high as people thought, but I still thought she was going to. It was still a two thirds chance, which I was reasonably confident in um i thought you know once this is over we're going to be enemies again and that's going to be sad because i kind of liked i kind of liked getting to read these other perspectives and things and not feeling outraged by everything they're writing (laughs) and um and i like and i mean i will confess also i liked that sense of um confirmation bias when you're like oh even they agree with me clearly i'm right um but uh then of course the election went the other way and that has extended our truce, if you will. Um, but it's been fascinating because as it turns on from issues other than the binary Trump or no Trump, um, you get disagreements cropping up again, as we saw with Brett Stevens. Suddenly he writes a thing that 
violates the left wing shibboleth, and he and people get out. I think extra outraged because they thought here was a conservative that was agreeing with us, even though the column yeah. did agree that global warming was an issue. And so uh, one of the things that I really want to think about here, and this would be a wonderful time for us to be a more successful show and actually have somebody relevant on. Um, too bad we are not. Um, would be when Trump is gone, and whether that's in four years or eight years or next year, um, uh, one must always remember that uh, even if impeachment is unlikely, the Sarah Palin process of just quitting is always an option. <laughs> um, but uh, when he's gone, how do we not necessarily keep agreeing with them, but how do we stay friendly with them? Because uh, some of them, there's there's bigger gaps than there would be with others. Bill Kristol and Charles Krauthammer on policy issues are sufficiently far removed from me that um, it would be tricky. But on some of the other ones who were maybe a little squishier to start with, your David Brooks, your David from um, Max Boot is more concerned with foreign policy issues and not as much the domestic policy shibboleths. But, you know, I've, I've been thinking about when this is done, I w it would be part of the problem we've had, which led up to Trump, is partisan rancor. And so one thing that Trump has paradoxically done is to reduce some of the partisan rancor for the people who are sort of on the edges and willing to stand up to Trump. We are now willing to be friendly with somebody like a Max Boot that people might a decade ago have been, you know, call, uh, been a horrible person for his neoconservative views that led to the war in Iraq. And now mm -hmm. suddenly, because he's saying anti-Trump stuff, we can get along a little bit better. So something I'm concerned, and David, I don't know if you've had a lot of discussions with people um, that you don't normally agree with, that you did agree with on Trump, but do you have a view on what we're going to do when Trump is gone to reduce this rancor by saying, well, now that we've had common cause for a while, we know that we're not enemies? Yeah, I, you know, I don't really have much confidence that there is going to be some kind of uh great awakening of civic virtue, um, you know, to come out of this. I obviously hope that that's the case. And to some extent, I think that, um, you know, hope, so, so hope, you know, hope and change became a, a kind of a, like a, like a lament, you know, it's, yeah. uh, you know, it's a lament of a generation that um, feels that it was duped, I, I think in a, in a big way. And I really hate that because, um, for one thing, you know, I remember at the end of the Obama campaign feeling resentful, you know, so, so my own story is I was working for a, a hardcore conservative Republican House member who gave me three weeks of unpaid vacation to work for Obama um, in the lead up to the 2008 election because... Um, you know, one, he respected the way in which he and I saw the world differently. And so he uh, was willing to give me that, you know, that slack. But another, you know, he saw, uh, this is, you know, Bob Inglis, who saw that, um, you know, the main threat to climate change, or to, you know, the world was climate change. The, it the climate change and the policy responses uh, to it could put American business in a position to capture um, emerging technologies and dominate emerging uh, technology and energy markets. Um, and that this is a thing that 
as a conservative with conservative solutions, um, seeing this, you know, as a real problem, um, was both a, something he was compelled to do and, um, that presented a great opportunity for him to do and that he saw, you know, he, he was, he was fine with, with, uh, with McCain, and I think he would have preferred something actually more conservative than McCain, but McCain's uh, signaling by having Palin as mm. the running mate, you know, the drill, baby drill thing was so disheartening for him that he was willing to um, give me that extra latitude to, you know, to go and, and join the, the campaign in an unpaid capacity. Um, anyway, so I remember at the end of the campaign feeling adrift as this, you know, you are the change that you hope to see in the world message. Um, we thought, okay, you know, we've become this big army, this great civilian army. We're all together. We've been, we've been joined together in this great cause and it's just going to continue for the next four years or eight years. You know, and I remember this feeling of great disappointment when, uh, we just stopped getting emails and, you know, or well, uh, wait, Obama you stopped getting emails. <laughs> Well, we I just like, cleaned fifteen hundred messages out of an old email account that is where all my Democratic committee spam comes in. Just yesterday, right? Yeah, so we, we just it, it transitioned to straight up fundraising spam. Oh, okay, is, yeah, is my that I we stopped we stopped getting we stopped getting like mission oriented emails. Oh, okay. Um, and I remember feeling uh, resentful that we'd been cut adrift, and it wasn't until a friend of my mom's um, mentioned the same thing you know, sometime last year and mom relayed that to me of like, you know, Oh, they told us we were part of something and then they just left us in the lurch. That it occurred to me that, you know what, that was the absolute opposite of Obama's message. You know, Obama's message was not, I mean, the, I mean, the way that it played out and what it actually had at its core, if you look at the text of the message, total opposite because the text of the message is, you citizens are the change that you want to see in the world. The messaging was, you know, I, Obama, the charismatic leader will, uh, lead us into the promised land. And what so many people wanted was the charismatic leader. They didn't actually want to participate. They didn't actually want participatory democracy. They didn't want to solve their own problems and, you know, um, continually mobilize themselves for their own solutions to what they considered as their own problems. They wanted to be led. And, um, you know, we are in a, um, I mean, this, we talked at the beginning of the show about, you know, sick cycles in American history. And, um, I think that, you know, the people being whipped up by the charismatic leader and feeling like there's, they're moving in a direction and this is great and we're going to, we're going to go somewhere and it's going to be wonderful. I mean, that itself is a cycle because, you know, the charismatic leader comes and then they leave and the people get all frothy and then they settle down again and they're disappointed. And, you know, obviously there are changes, you know, we do have policy changes over time, but that feeling mm. becomes you know, a cyclical thing where it's either you're turned on or you're turned off, you know, you feel like there's possibility or you don't. And, um, so, you know, I think that 
it's possible that Trump um, is kind of like an anti-Obama, where we're forced to realize that there is no charismatic leader. You know, there is no hope other than with each other. You know, the only way to um, to succeed in preserving what we value in our society is to, you know, band together. Um, and I think that that is, I mean, there's a, there is a possibility that that will result in some kind of lasting change. Um, but I'm not, I'm not, you know, super hopeful about it. I mean, Um, I'm pretty sure the Trump 2020 campaign slogan is there is no hope. (laughs) Right. Right. But that, that being said, that being said, I just did, I did, I do want to say, you know, I think that that hope is a duty. I think it's not, you know, it's not the, um, it's not the cotton candy that people thought Obama was giving us. You know, he was trying to tell us you have a duty as citizens to be hopeful for what you, what you together can accomplish, not what I will do for you. You know, I think that's what, that is what he was actually trying to say. Um, I think he uh, didn't always stick to that because it was easier to feel like the charismatic leader. And I think he didn't want to. You know, he succumbed to that challenge. Yeah, this does and take us a thing, little far afield. Then, yeah. then I'll pass the floor to okay. you. Sorry, but the you know the thing that we can um, the thing that we can do to try to get the conservatives uh, and you know liberals, uh, leftists, radicals, you know, basically like people in the political center of both left and right orientation um, to work in concert moving forward is to figure out who's operating in good faith and remember who those people are. Um, and Brett Stevens, for example, with his climate change piece, you know, people who see uh, doubt climate change, you know, these two ideas coming together, just assumed that it was, you know, that it was um, an article operating in bad faith. But if you, if you look at the argument, you realize that it is a good argument. It, it makes sense. And uh, that you can go along with it and not, you know, not say like, okay, there's, we don't have to worry about cl- climate change, but just what is this person actually telling me? Um, and I think that um, it is possible to, it is possible that we can, uh, practice those ways of thinking and that's something that can lead us to um you know better kind of politics in the years i agree yeah um so it's fascinating i'm I'm, i've been looking at the timer on the recording here and it's amazing how we chose this narrower topic and we're almost out of time and still haven't touched on a number of things that i really wanted to talk about um but i so i want to give just a couple of quick notes maybe someday in the future we can go on extended uh discussions of this but um, something I wanted to note uh, quickly is um, there is an attitude that we need to be careful of when we talk about um, people from the other side who we suddenly start to praise and like because, you know, they're breaking with their side. And then we take that attitude of liking them and we find ourselves in an attitude that I've seen from way too many people on both sides where their moderates are heroes, but our moderates are traitors. And that's wrong. I mean, we were both in Connecticut for the 2006 uh, election for Joe Lieberman, where he faced – he was – the term primaried sort of became a verb in at least popular use 
um, around the time of, of the Tea Party, about Bob Inglis being one of the first examples of a primaried um, politician at that point. But one of the first uses of primary in the modern era, we know Roosevelt did quite a bit to try to you know purge the Democratic Party of people who were obstructing his agenda. But um, you look at Joe Lieberman in 2006, faced a left-wing challenge because there were liberals who were mad that he supported the war in Iraq, and they thought he was too chummy with George Bush, and so they made him lose the primary. But everybody knew, everybody in Connecticut knew, that if he lost the primary, he was going to win the general election anyway. Because he was Joe Lieberman, he was a fixture of Connecticut politics. And I was sort of lonely on campus at the time for taking this view of, what are you people doing with your Ned Lamont? Ned Lamont was the name of the challenger, right? I think it was Ned That's Lamont. That's right, yeah. They all had their Ned Lamont pins. I'm like, what are you doing? This is madness. All you're going to do is throw him out of the party. And sure enough, he won re-election by a very comfortable margin. And then in 2008, two years later, he endorsed the Republican nominee for, John, uh, for President John McCain because it's a very good friend of his that he believes in very strongly, and because he said, look, I'm freer to do different things because you kicked me out of the party. And right. a lot of Democrats uh, hold great animus, Gail Collins will always bring this up, towards Joe Lieberman. Um, she always says everything is Joe Lieberman's fault. Um, <laughs> and uh, particularly because he was one of the big voices saying no to single payer when they started talking about Obamacare. And yeah. Look, he said he felt freer to uh, to take stances that broke party shibboleths because the party threw him out. If you you can't say that it's you know it, you can't say oh it's horrible when the other side primaries its people to get crazier and crazier candidates, but it's good when our side kicks out Joe Lieberman, and then also we're going to get mad at him for not being loyal to us after we were disloyal to him. It's, right. it's that's just sort of a view that I think we all need to bear in mind that. Um, you know, if you think it's good to have people who are moderate in your party, then it's it's good for both parties. I mean, they're a moderate, they're a moderating influence, and moderating influences help to reduce partisan rancor. Now, maybe you're on the far left and you just think everything needs to move in my direction, and a moderate is moving away from my direction. But look, that in the long run of politics, I'm not sure that I've seen too many examples of that being a good idea. One of the reasons the Democrats took back the House and Senate in 2006 was that Howard Dean who, when he took over the DNC, was considered this crazy left-wing guy. Um, Howard Dean was willing to recruit in, you know, moderate candidates throughout the country. I mean, right. Jim Webb angered a lot of Democrats by being you know, mu- uh, you know, not as far to the left as the other candidates during the presidential primary last year. But Jim Webb, the, you know, he, nobody thought they were going to – not nobody, but people did not think they were going to take the Virginia Senate seat from George Allen – um, and then he made that horrible comment that was caught on film, and the fact that Howard Dean had made sure they had a plausible candidate in the race meant that they narrowly won. And right. that was huge. That was how the Democrats helped get back the Senate. It was very crucial that they included these moderates. Sometimes moderates are going to you know, block an issue here or there that you care about, but the moderates are not going to be the ones who vote for Mitch McConnell to be Senate Majority Leader. And, right. and they're not going to put... They're not going to put crazy people – they're not going to put climate change denialists in charge of the science committee. you know. Right. And who's the committee chairman is very important. So, right. I mean, I just want to leave people with this notion that um, that don't treat their moderates as heroes but ours as traitors. I think that that's just well, an important is, thing we need to discuss. Yeah. I mean, not I, necessarily in this moment because we ran long, but yeah. – <laughs> Well, you know, I mean um, we're, we're talking about process. You know, we're talking about ways of thinking. We're talking about being – uh, rigorous, 
and principled and operating in good faith. And, you know, um, I hadn't thought about Joe Lieberman in a long time. Um, but everything you say in this context, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. And it is, it's the type of thing where you get to prove that you're, that you have integrity if you can follow that line of thought and make that argument that you, uh, that you just did. Um, one thing I would say is that I think, um, part of the issue is the sense that someone in like a safe liberal seat, like Joe Lieberman, you know, that that's like, okay, he's yeah, a traitor. That it's, it's not you as know. though the Republicans would have won. Yeah. It, it's yeah. not, it's not like a, it's not like a North Dakota, Montana or Virginia Senate seat. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, yeah, Virginia in 2006, Virginia now is very different. Right. But. Right. And, and so, you know, cause, cause now going back into that political moment, you know, when you had Scott, uh, Brown. Right. Winning know, in Massachusetts. Winning in Massachusetts. And, um, you know, Joe Lieberman, Connecticut, it's like, this is not supposed to be this way. <laughs> there's, there, there's a sense that um, you had people who were taking seats that should have been progressive seats. Whereas, um, and I, I don't see this as a reason to overcome your argument, which again, I think is uh, one that proves um where you just have to be, you have to be honest with yourself if you're talking about, you know, the other side being so extreme. Um, if you're always pointing fingers, you know, you have to learn how to point figures of yourself if you want to be seen as a remotely honest person. Um, but, you know, the contrast now is with someone like, you know, we have, um, you know, this issue of Heidi Heitkamp and, uh, Joe Manchin and Joe Manchin is constantly making noise about how thrilled he would be to, you know, to um, work hand in hand with the Republican majority if it need, you know, if it would allow him to deliver, you know, to the people of West Virginia. And it's like, okay, anyone who is remotely realistic should understand that West Virginia is not going to be a moderate, you know, not going to be represented by someone like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. No. Um, that's just a, that's just realism. But I think there was a sense of betrayal that, you know, a state like Connecticut or a state like Massachusetts, where the politics are pretty far left, relatively speaking, um, would send a a moderate. I think that, you know, it's a slightly different political moment that we're in now. No, that's definitely true. Um, And again, you know, because one of the things we want to talk about on this show is a realistic view that takes into account the circumstances that you are in. And so part of where that fits in with Joe Lieberman is – we all knew in 2006, I mean, except for people who, I guess the losing candidate always thinks they have a chance right up to election day. But um, but Joe, but uh, we knew Joe Lieberman, we, we were pretty sure Joe Lieberman was going to win, even if he lost the primary. And so in that situation, it's not really a choice of Lieberman or Lamont. It's Lieberman in your party or Lieberman kicked out of your party. Right. And I don't right. think, I mean, Joe Lieberman, you know, he differed on issues like the war. He, he didn't, you know, the public option thing came later. Um, there are a number of issues where I certainly disagreed with Joe Lieberman, but he, it wasn't like he was Joe, Joe Lieberman, Joe Lieberman wasn't Joe Manchin. You know, he wasn't right. like right. Joe Lieberman may not have agreed with the left on a lot of things, but there is a reason Al Gore chose him as his running mate in 2000. He wasn't, he wasn't, he, he's not a right wing Democrat that right. he, he has been more willing to be friendly with Republicans. It's true, but that's, that's something we need more of, not less. So yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, and going back to what you said again, it's like 
you know, if you hadn't kicked him out of the party, if you hadn't put him through this experience where he learned, oh, I don't have to rely on Democratic votes. I can get votes from independents and Republicans in this state who trust me. You know, let's see what I have to think about health care. Like if he had stayed in the Democratic Party, maybe he wouldn't have been such a thorn in the side of um, the party during the health care drafting process. Right. And yeah. And so there's, of course, so many other issues I'd love to jump in on right now, but I'm going to try really hard to keep getting us closer and closer to an hour each time. <laughs> um, so I'm going to uh, shift now to this week's uh, soapbox sign off. Um, I would like to talk to you this week about um, punishment and vindictiveness. Hmm. Um, so two days ago, I was on the Metro um, on my way to, to meet with some people. And uh, there was this this group of rowdy youths who were um, just being obnoxious. They were running around on the metro. They were singing very loud, profane songs, just being awful. They were teenagers, 16 to 18-ish, maybe. And uh, I was just ignoring them. I just stood still, just looking at my phone. Just They even ran into me a number of times. Um, and didn't say I'm sorry or anything. They were just being jerks. And I'm like, whatever, I'm just going to be calm and quiet and stay in my little world here. And so we get to the stop before my stop. And of the four of them, three of them get off. And then the other one lingers for a moment. I'm like, that's weird. Why is she doing that? And the, and right before the doors are about to close, she suddenly runs over, grabs my phone and runs off. So now I actually managed to get off the train before the doors closed and shout, you know, stop her. She stole my phone. Um, but nobody stopped her, which was kind of impressive given that the particular stop we were on was one with a very long path to get off where people are always so densely packed. I can never get off. Oh, um, my God. So this person has stolen my phone, and obviously I couldn't follow her upstairs, so I was unable to, like, chase her or anything. Being in a wheelchair is not great for that. Um, so I run and get security. And a number of witnesses who also – a witness, uh, one witness in particular who um, was on my train and was not getting off at that stop either – was so mad because she saw how they were treating me before and then saw this, that she jumped off to try to help chase them too. Um, so we all got security and uh, we tried to use, you know, the find my phone feature. Obviously they turn the phone off as soon as they can. Um, so yeah, my phone was stolen from me on Friday afternoon, which derailed my evening's plans to put it mildly. Um, I had to then spend a long period of time uh, in there talking with the police. Uh, they're going to have like a report filed. I'm supposed to call in next week. Um, I have uh, already obtained a new phone. Thankfully, um, this era of cloud computing means that I lost almost nothing because, in terms of data because um, the phone that I was using had been backed up just 12 hours before it was stolen. Um, this is still, you know, monetary. So the real inconvenience here, aside from that day, ends up being monetary, um, that I had to pay for a new phone. I've kept the receipt. Hopefully, when they catch these people... Um, I can get some kind of restitution, but, um, which by the way, the police that I was talking to said that it would be much more like, it would be pretty likely to catch the people because there are cameras everywhere. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but very unlikely that I'd get my phone back because they ditched them pretty quickly. Sure. Um, and also of course, you know, they, they turn it off. They, so you can't use find my phone. They jailbreak it to get past the other stuff. I already remotely erased the phone. You know, I had my backup ready. Uh, I went to the Verizon store the next morning and was able to pick up a new one. 
Um, so I'm out about 870 bucks getting a new phone, which is very annoying. But um, well, that's your healthcare right there. Right. Yeah. Hopefully, I can actually my premium per month is actually shockingly much much lower than that. Um, for somebody with my health conditions, this is we can get on to where I think about healthcare later. But um, for this purposes, I want to talk about how I felt about this and how um, what's a productive way to feel about this now. I want to be clear that what happened to me was not an armed robbery. This wasn't a massive psychologically damaging experience of me being stopped in the street at night by somebody with a gun. This wasn't the kind of thing that's going to like make me suddenly anxious well, more anxious um, and and overly obsessive about it and, you know, be fearful of lots of things. This was really just infuriating more than anything else, especially that they treated me this way before they stole it. I have to confess there's a part of me, what part of what I remember the most when she stole the phone was the smile she had on her face when she did it. Like there's a, oh, there's man. a part of me where it's like you could have at least been like I'm sorry I need to pay tuition. <laughs> like there are things you could have done that would have made me not be angry about this as as angry at any rate. Um, so you know I'm certainly hoping they catch the people. I certainly hope that they be punished. But I just wanted to make a brief note about you know letting people. Um, sort of control your emotions by how they treat you. The title of this podcast is Fear, Honor, and Interest, which we haven't paused to explain much yet because I, we feel that that's going to be sort of its own podcast to get into Thucydides and all of that. But the point of the title is that Thucydides, through the mouths of the Athenians, says that those are the three causes of war, fear, honor, and interest. And this touches on the honor part of, of, of any conflict, really, which is that Sometimes when, when something is stolen from you like that, they're making an assault on your dignity. You know, they're saying, I can take this from you. I'm going to take this from you. And a lot of people get this desire for retribution where what they want to do is, you know, my honor has been insulted. I'm angry about that. And I'm going to lash out at the person who's responsible. And I think it's very important to not suppress that feeling because suppressing emotions is not a great strategy. But it's important not to feed that emotion. It's important not to feed the emotion of, I need to hurt you because of what you did. Um, it makes you think about the person longer. It, you know, it, as I said, it gives them a power over you in a certain sense. Um, and it, it leads to a lot of behavior that I think is, is self-destructive. Um, so what I'm trying to do with this is, I certainly want them to be punished. Um, but I think there's an appropriate punishment for what they did. And um, as long as they get some level of that appropriate punishment, I don't want to obsess about this or think about it too strongly or let this sort of enrage me and dominate my emotions for some period of time. Um, and I just want to point out that, you know, something that struck me very hard while I'm talking with the police is so they, you know, they, they, they didn't have the full ability to check all the camera footage yet, but. You know, they were able to go around and stop groups of people who met the description that I, that 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 was there of the people. And remember, I didn't get a great look because I was looking down at my phone. I had a baseball cap on, so I couldn't um, – I didn't really get a good look at them except for the person who stole it. Um, so what am I going to be able to give them for description? Well, it was a group of young black teenagers. And, and the, the other witness, um, who was herself a black woman, um, was also, you know – the descript was able to describe their clothes and, and, and so forth as well. But when they want to quickly grab a few people and stop them and, and do this show to have a, see if that's a positive or negative identification, 
you know, they were, I, I, we were negative identifications is what, you know, I was giving, but I'm just floored by the fact that the police basically just have to stop a bunch of black teenagers and then parade them in front of me like they've done something bad when they were probably just out having a Friday evening. And, right. you know, this isn't going to have long consequences for them because I said, like, no, this wasn't the person who did it, except one of them. Well, anyway, um, the, I don't know how much I should talk about an ongoing thing, but but the point is, uh, you know, this part of the consequences of what happens when you do this and in the search for justice. And there's nothing I don't know what the police could have done better about this. They have to round right. up the suspects who meet the descriptions and the ones they rounded up. I mean, the clothes met the description, but when they're wearing a white T-shirt and jeans, you know, how right. you can be like, well, this one is isn't as thin as that person was. or This one isn't as tall as that person was. But, you know, it really stuck with me that, you know, what are what are those people going to think for the rest of their evening that those four people who or uh, or, or so who, you know, were forced to get stopped, grabbed by the police, paraded around in front of some white guy so right. that they can be possibly identified as suspected criminals. I mean, that's just miserable. This whole situation is is, is miserable, yeah. but we want to try to make it. We don't want to just spread misery in a, misery in a sense of lashing out at people. I think that what I would like to see in general in a situation like this with a young person, you don't you want a punishment that's harsh enough that they understand they did something wrong and that it changes them if that's possible. What I don't want, what I ever don't ever want to see, are punishments that um, that sort of brand them for life and make it so that they can never reform. You know, I don't right. want to see something where it's just a permanent mark on you the sort of brand of a thief that people would have had in centuries past. I don't want to see something that prevents them from getting their life better because, look, I was offended by the way they treated me. I was angry about them stealing the phone. But there is an appropriate punishment for that. There's an amount of 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 of, 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 of uh, repentance that they could do monetarily and sort of emotionally. And there's a way that they could become good people again. And I don't want that urge that we all feel of our honor being violated to lead to the kind of conflict that just destroys. Um, it's important right. that I not have my emotional state destroyed. It's important that their lives are not destroyed if they're willing to, um, to, to, to change. So that's just a thought I wanted to leave you with today about uh, my adventure on Friday uh, afternoon. Um, and I just want you to bear this in mind, especially over littler things that people do that offend you is that, look, this makes you mad, but what is the best way to really approach this? I find when we're not talking about crimes, when we're talking about just disputes with people, just pausing and not being angry can, can make things so much better that uh, I just, just think about it that way. Just don't feel that your honor is impugned all the time. Remember that people who are going to steal your phone are beneath the level that can really impact your honor. What affects your honor is what you do with it afterwards, not what somebody says or does to you. So I want to leave you with that thought, everybody. Have a great week.